0: Goal. Hey Diane, uh, I hope you're doing well. We're well into the topsy turvy weather of that is March in uh, New England, and it kind of feels like the topsy turvy news cycle out there. One, you know, one moment there's optimism as more are vaccinated, and we talk about the possibility of getting back in person with one another and things like that, and then. Another moment, there's just you know, frankly, the pessimism that's been with us over the last year. As you focus on just how much devastation there's been, what's going on in your world?
1: Well, Michael, it feels like we're a little bit parallel in both weather and reality. Our our, we're having this spring storm here in California, which is a little bit unusual for us, but quite cold, lots of rain, some snow, and whatnot. Um, And I'm really immersed in figuring out how we're going to be reopening our buildings our school buildings finally here in California. And um, very similarly, there's a, a lot of emotion around this. There's a lot of push-pull. On one hand, there's excitement. On the other hand, there's a lot of fear. And just managing through all of that definitely feels topsy-turvy. So I, I can relate. Um, and, and Michael, actually, it's a really good segue because um, I have an idea for our podcast today.
0: Well, I'm excited to hear that.
1: Well, originally, we launched Class Disrupted about a year ago, literally about a year ago, yeah, right. uh, when the pandemic began, uh, and we wanted to just explore how we might use the disruption to our schools to make them better for all kids going forward. Um, and as as we pass that one-year mark um, of class literally being disrupted, <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in talking about next fall. And I, I know that okay. seems—I know, I know—that seems crazy to think so far in the future, and for the last year, most of us can't think past past tomorrow. But you know, one of the primary concepts in education is this idea of backward planning. And it comes from this approach to lesson planning called Understanding by Design. Uh, any teacher who's been trained in the last 30 years knows Grant Wiggins and Jay McTai and this idea that um, you, you have to, if you wanna ensure that all your students will meet their ultimate learning goals, you need to know what those goals are before you start. You need to know how you're gonna know if the kids meet them. And you, you have to build a backward plan of all your activities, experiences, in your course to get those outcomes. And so my view, Michael is if we're not thinking about the fall right now, if we're not setting goals and expectations, we're not going to be planning appropriately and engaging in the right behaviors to get us where we need to go. So what do you think?
0: Let's do it. I love this topic. I uh, look, I totally agree with you that we need to plan with the end in mind, uh, not just as Wiggins and McTye would say, but frankly, you know, Stephen Covey, who talks about how to be successful as a person in life, right? Start with the end in mind and, and, and work backwards yeah. from there to help know what you need to prioritize and what is less important and not let the urgent take over uh, your entire life, right? Which is so easy to do. And, you know, as I think about it, uh, so much, I think, of the rush over the past year has been just responding to the next thing in front of you, rather than exactly. stepping back and saying, okay, we have some understanding of the currents going on right now. Fall is a great, I think, sort of timeline for us to put in the sand and say, let's backwards plan from there, understanding what are the outcomes uh, and and, and what, what state do we want schools to be reopening in, in effect, uh, in the next school year. So my Off that, Diana, what if we put some structure around and think about the five or so outcomes that schools should expect as of the start of school in the fall, and then identify what needs to be happening leading up to that first day so that they can be true. Start from there.
1: I think that sounds great. Um, I'm going to call it Diana Michael's top five. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to kick us off uh, with number one, which it feels um, just foundational, quite frankly, because we still will be in a pandemic in the fall, even if it's improved. So I'm going to start us off with health and safety. Um, and and specifically, I think the outcome we need to be aiming for for the start of next school year is that all school buildings need to be fully open, Michael. And and you know, that sounds maybe kind of silly, like duh, of course, but I don't think that's a foregone conclusion in everyone's mind. So I think we should put a stake in the ground around that. Students need to be attending in person full time. And, you know, this one's pretty easy to measure. You you can know if the building's open and the kids are there full time. Easy to make a smart goal around this one. Exactly. Um, But it also really necessitates some planning and activity now in order to meet it. And and specifically, I think there's a couple of areas we should talk about. Uh, First, vaccines. Um, I don't know if you're noticing this, Michael, but I certainly am as the educators in our network are getting vaccinated. Vaccines are a game changer here. <laughs> and... Um, you know, both mentally in terms of the feeling of comfort and safety and security. um, But I think there's still a lot of work to be done to make sure everyone actually is getting vaccinated across the country from an educator perspective. And then I don't know, Michael, do you think schools need to be thinking about I don't know, policies and expectations around student vaccination when it becomes available.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Diane. And, and I think schools will need to step back on, on a couple fronts because one, there's gonna need to be a notion about refresh of the vaccination, right? The vaccine mm. is good for a certain number of months. We know at least yeah. 90 days, we feel pretty confident about it. It's probably a little longer than that, but we don't fully know. Uh, and so there's gonna be a question about refresh and when and how do we monitor that? So I think that's gonna be an, uh, something to keep track of. Uh, but then the second one will be, uh, we know that schools already ask for lots of information about what vaccines you have uh, on, a, on a whole host of other uh, diseases. And so there is precedent. There's ways to do this. Uh, there are ways to respect individuals that maybe have a medical exemption uh, or some underlying reason that they can't do it. Uh, but I think that uh, particularly, as you said, once Students and and I think there's some reasonable indicators that children there are you know above certainly middle and high school I think will be uh, eligible for vaccines in the fall I think schools are going to have to come up with some policies and put some stakes in the ground that this is important uh, for the schooling community uh, to feel safe I'll I'll add Diane I think you can feel safe without it frankly uh, with the measures that we've seen but given the importance a lot of stakeholders put on it, I think that's a very logical place to start.
1: I I think that's exactly right. And and the reason we're bringing up this now is that don't wait to the fall to be thinking about those policies. You need to be looking at precedent now, considering those, drafting, getting community buy-in, etc., which goes right along with the second piece here, which is contracts. I mean, I don't know. There's been tons of coverage, obviously, lots of protests and anger on lots of sides we've talked about around around teacher contracts and i don't know if most people realize that most of those contracts only go through the end of this school year and so the next school year is a whole new bargaining experience for for many people and and in most cases will require additional bargaining because the health and safety conditions will still be you know not totally normal um it seems like a terrible idea to me that we'd be waiting till the summer to think about negotiating, given what we saw this year and these last minute changes and, you know, parents not knowing if their kids are going back to school tomorrow or not and, you know, all of that. And so this really, I think, we've got to deal with this now.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you, Diane. And and I would say for superintendents uh, or, you know, uh, heads of charter networks or whatever that are, are thinking about this right now, the moment you get through negotiations, at the moment to reopen the building, which a lot are going to be going through over the next couple of weeks, because a lot of governors are snapping down and saying in-person schooling starting right. you know, in Massachusetts, where I am, April fifth. Uh, so that
1: happened to us in Washington last week as well. Exactly. Right. That, I yep. mean, by the
0: way, that seems to be a common date, and I'm not quite sure why that is, but it, it does seem to be a common date across the country. But uh, as soon as you're done with that, there's going to be a temptation to put it off. I would say take your breath, take your moment, and then get right back into it the next week. Preparing for the fall because you're right. If you wait to the summer, it's just one more logistical thing that I think is going to hold you back from the conversation. I'm excited for us to turn to when we get into our our next re, uh, you know things that schools ought to be planning for, which is really what's the look and feel of the school going to be? You know, the actual student experience itself. But there's no question schools are going to have to think about the contracts. They're going to have to put guidelines around spacing. CDC will have something to say with this. Just uh, you know, just uh, over the weekend end, uh, Fauci made the uh, statement that the CDC may be rethinking its six-feet guideline and move to a three-feet, uh, which uh, at least my read of the evidence would seem to be more in line with what we're seeing from the research as a safe uh, space. And all of a sudden would give schools the capacity uh, to, to have full classes uh, in person. Uh, and so, you know, and then the other piece, I think that schools are going to have to put some clarity around uh, what do they expect mask wearing uh, to look like in the fall?
1: For certain, for certain. All of that makes tons of sense to me. The three feet is, is actually a game changer from an operational perspective. Yep. I can tell you as someone who's on the ground on that right now. The last piece I'll touch on here before we move on to our our number two of five, but I just want to, there's obviously personalization here, Michael, like vaccines, there's going to be cases where it just doesn't work for people for a variety of reasons. There's all sorts of individual cases. And, you know, you and I are both huge advocates of personalizing, even within the context of a system and not even within our system should be personalized by nature. Um, And so we'll, we'll loop back to this in our others, but just let's, let's put a stake in the ground about that. Put a stake in the ground.
0: And the only thing I'll add is that even as all buildings, I think should be open in the fall, some students, families will also want or need different types of schooling options. And I think Uh, districts in particular, this this applies less to like a charter network that has a philosophy and a way of doing things. But for a district that is offering many schools across a wide population with different needs and interests and so forth, I think thinking more of a portfolio model is going to become that much more important where you continue to provide a virtual remote experience. Uh, I was somewhat shocked in the state of Massachusetts where I am, where the commissioner said uh, recently, we're, you know, everyone's going back in person April 5th for elementary schools will extend the remote guidance uh for for this year but unclear if they were going to allow it for next year I think that's a mistake I think that you ought to have the choice uh for certain families uh in those experiences I think they ought to look at micro schools I think districts ought to be looking at schools that have different philosophies uh to meet families where they are and uh you know, that personalization, I think, mixes in with this health and safety concern.
1: Michael, I agree. And I think it um, takes us nicely into number two, which is, um, I think we both agree that you that every school needs to be thinking about a really intentional culture and connection launch. Let's call it that in the fall. Um, And, you know, at the heart of this is at is trust. And trust is everything in a school and a community and in this moment in time. And and what we know about trust is it's built through personal connection, through knowing people, through seeing people. Um, and we have got to launch the year by focusing all of our attention on building meaningful connection and trusting relationships in our school communities. And, and this means that we as schools have to devote meaningful time to achieving the objective. I'm not talking like a one hour meeting or a back to school night or something. I mean, we're talking, we need to have a really thoughtful plan that that spans, you know, weeks and the full month um, and sort of goes all in at the beginning and then slowly evolves into um, ensuring that we are building a community that has Make sure that students and families have a shared sense of belonging they they feel they feel like the the school is equally committed to their success, um, and that their success is not simply about academic achievement, but it's also about their mindsets and their habits and their um, mental and emotional health. Um, so so yeah I I, we've talked about this before but what are your what are your thoughts on I I could I
0: so I couldn't agree more with you to me like culture 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 eats strategy for lunch every single day of the week and then some uh and trust is the coin of the realm right and uh Annette Anderson Professor Johns Hopkins has talked about how in many communities of, of black families in particular trust is shattered right now with their school districts they didn't trust the guidance that came out the guidance shifted a lot they were failing their kids beforehand. uh, And their communities were disproportionately impacted by this uh, pandemic from a health perspective, also an economic perspective. Uh, And so rebuilding trust in an ongoing and meaningful way is going to be critical, and it can't be a slogan or or something that is done a couple meetings. It's got to be every single thing you do. It has to be at the center of this. And I want to define culture for those listening to 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 this uh, t- to us talk about this because culture can sometimes sound airy fairy, but I, the way I think about culture. It's the priorities and practices that you put in place when no one's looking. And so it's some of that is written, but a lot of it is just like the natural steps you take. And to me, you've got to sweat every single detail of those cultures. You know, when someone comes in the building, how do you listen to them? To the first time you have a conversation with a student and, and, and their guardians. Like culture has to pervade everything every step of that and it's got to be intentional and frankly it takes a lot of work to build a strong culture because you got to do it over and over again until it just it's in muscle memory right of the organization and That's going to, I mean, let's just be honest. That's not in a lot of our districts across the country today. They're going to have to start very intentionally now building that muscle.
1: I agree with you completely. Uh, Everything you've said makes tons of sense. A couple things I would add to it is, um, you know, one of my board members has always said so thoughtfully, a culture will develop and exist the only question is, is it the one you want? So well said. And, 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 you know, I think that it's very weird the way people are going back this year. There's a huge opportunity for a reset of culture. And quite frankly, this is this is one of the opportunities coming out of the pandemic, because I don't think a lot of school cultures were built on shared values and beliefs around families and students before. And I don't think they had language. You know, These are the features of culture that we often uh, hang our hats on, and, and traditions and rituals that reinforce those values and make them more than a slogan. And um, so, I think there's a huge opportunity. I think there's some real resources people have to draw upon. This is where we should be looking at the science of human development and learning. We should be looking at trauma-informed practices, um, you know, to support the emotional and mental health of everyone in the building, but most, you know, our kids clearly. And so... um, big resources, but it's going to have to be intentional. People are going to have to really focus their energy here.
0: Yeah, Diane. And one one thing you just said in terms of the rituals and practices and traditions you put in place, I would urge everyone to remember that tr- the traditions that you had in your building <laughs> were an outgrowth of things that made sense for a certain era, whenever they were put in place, They they are reflections of a culture and a process that someone decided was important. We're in a different circumstance. You have different students from the ones you probably had 30 years ago when a lot of those traditions were created, have the ability to say, it's not about the tradition. It's about the spirit. The tradition is designed to accomplish. And right. Uh, that may mean a very intentional rethinking of some of those traditions. Some of them may be perfect, but don't just let it stick <laughs> because it was a Agreed. tradition for its own sake. And, and then... Yeah, yes, know go ahead. the
1: purpose of it. Know the purpose of it. And, you know, Michael, there's also a huge opportunity here to really use an anti-bias, anti-racist mm-hmm. lens as we th- rethink these things and put the microscope on that from that perspective, Um because I think a lot of places will discover a lot of what they've done just because they've always done it actually are not equitable in nature.
0: And let's bring up one from our first uh, year, which is, you know, what everyone popularly calls the agrarian calendar. As we dug into that for our our first season, what we learned was, it's not actually built even around the farming mindset, it was built for rich families who were leaving school and making all the uh, low income families deal in effect. And that's a tradition that uh I would argue didn't have much purpose back then but has certainly outlived <laughs> it now right and so uh, I'll I'll give you a second one which is you know there's so much conversation right now of learning loss I would move away from mm-hmm. that learning loss mindset to a mastery mindset which which yes. I think is a perfect segue into into number 3 yes. which is uh which is about assessing students now we, we both have some agreement that schools and families do need to know where students are both academically, but not just academically, also in terms of their mindsets and habits, that whole child, right? Uh, the social emotional state, well-being of the child and where you're trying to bring each child. And I, I would go so far as to say over the course of the first month of, of return, you know, schools ought to establish simple protocols to figure out where each child is in their building. And it should be shared with students and families. So it's super transparent. It should be worked in partnership so that parents can understand what are you trying to learn? And frankly, how can I contribute to your understanding of where my kid is? Um, And I would just say, we're not talking about like day one landing in a seat and giving a multiple choice test. That's not what we're talking about when we say assessment.
1: Not at all, Michael. And you know, people might be sort of looking skeptically right now and saying, "Are you sure you're speaking for you and Diane?" We think she's like the anti-assessment lady, which <laughs> is is a bad rap I get because it's not true. I actually deeply value and appreciate assessment, um, and I think this gives us an opportunity, this moment, to do the the type of assessment that is meaningful and useful um, and productive. And so, just to get really specific here. The type of things that I'm thinking about, for example, in our schools, middle and high school, um, and the, the stuff that we're working on is, how do we do an opening project? that is going to assess our students' baseline cognitive skills so we really know where everyone is entering, and at the same time, built in some of those cultural experiences and you know connection and bringing kids back together. Look at their mindsets, look at their habits um, across a project. And oh, by the way, The teachers who are doing that assessment then, and the school that's doing that assessment has immediate access to the results. It's formative information that we're using as we feed back in. It's not some standardized test that some person somewhere in a warehouse is gonna scan Tron and then send us back months later and no one can actually read the results and know what to do with it. So that's the type of thing we're talking about at the elementary level. I think everyone agrees reading 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 and so you know there are ways that teachers can assess kids' reading ability, in-person, side-by-side, building trust and relationship. Those are the type of assessments we should be looking for in that first month of school.
0: Totally agree. And I'll just add two other recommendations to the list as people think about this, because I'm always the technology guy, for better yes. or worse. People always think <laughs> of me as the tech, you know, people... Which is not actually an accurate reading of me either, as you know. At but, all, at but, all. <laughs> but people think of me that way, so it's fine. I'll lean into it on this one, which is... Um, you know, for the reading records, right? Uh, there are some tools out there, Amira Learning, uh, for example, or using Soapbox Labs with uh, with uh, our friend Larry Berger at Amplify mm-hmm. uh, that can do this in automated ways so that teachers can do what I would lean into for number two, which is spend time in conversation with your yes. students, one-on-one, small group conversations, have dialogue to learn what did you do during the time, where are you, uh, uh, and and not just academically, but from a social-emotional standpoint, but also academically. Like, uh, you know, I think it's interesting as as Khan Academy uh, and our friend Sal there has launched schoolhouse.world, which is a very cool tutoring site, right. uh, the way that they verify tutors is through very simple... Verbal explanations on video that the community then can vet. And there's another school that I love up in New Hampshire, uh, the Virtual Learning Academy Charter School. It's a mastery based school. And the the teachers there, a lot of their assessments for mastery are just a five minute conversation about the concept because it turns out after about 30 seconds, you kind of know if the kid understands the concept or not. And so, Mm Conversation is a huge way to tackle this. Also,
1: it's also such a great segue into our fourth point, which is personalization. And you know, personalization pulls on so many of the things we've already talked about, Michael. This idea that, um, first of all, it's a it's an asset based approach to thinking Mm -hmm. about learning versus deficit. So you talked about this negative narrative around learning loss. We've we've talked about that extensively here. It flips it and says, you know, what is a child actually bringing? Singing. And and, oh, by the way, why don't we ask them what they're bringing, what their strengths are, what they've learned, what they care about. You know, we've spent all this time assuming what they don't know or lost this year. What about what they gained? And how do you get to that through conversation, through asking, which is relationship building, which allows you then, then you're going to have to personalize because all kids are not going to need the same thing. And that's always been true, but it will never be more true than this year, Michael, that all kids really will need personalization. And so, you know, we need to have, I think the goal by the end of next school year is that all of our students are on track in their learning. And imagine that because that's never been the case. So, wow, if we hit that, that would be phenomenal, right? Um, But but it's not credible to think that that's going to happen in regular classes during the regular school day without anything different happening. And so, Talk about how we need to be thinking about personalizing.
0: Yeah, so so a couple of thoughts, Diane, and one is uh, first for schools, and, and this might be for a, if you will, which is decide what really matters in the teaching and, and, and learning curriculum. Like decide what students really need to master. It's not every single standard or concept no. that has been listed. And the way I would think about it personally is a combination of what's important uh, for a prepared student in your community, and what concepts will directly impact future learning, right? And so it yes. turns out that if you look at the math curriculum, for example, it's heavily scaffolded on previous learning, but not every concept actually matters for future ones. The ones that don't, I would ask yourself very seriously, is this important? And that that may be right. controversial in certain circles, but You can't do everything, nor should you. And this is actually a really good opportunity to say, okay, first, we're going to understand what the students bring. That's going to help us understand what to build off of. And that's going to also understand then if we start from our end of what's really important from our perspective, right? then we can say what really matters, you know, uh, what gaps do matter. And we can focus in on those as opposed to every single one.
1: I agree with you, Michael. And one interesting way to think about that is what would close doors for kids later on if they don't know it or they don't have it or they don't have the skill. And that's like a, a real focusing, narrowing way to consider when, you know, people are personally tied to all of these different, sta- you know, standards and facts yep. and info and projects and activities, you, you got to let go of some of those and think about what what's going to close the door. For
0: so the sadly, kids. for me, that means algebra will stay. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a larger conversation for when <laughs> colleges rethink what, what, what matters. But I'll, I'll, just some examples here that I think uh, we're starting to see about how to do personalizing. Well, frankly, there's been some really encouraging news in the last uh, week or so with two studies coming out of Chicago from saga Education uh, around tutoring uh, that has bolstered learning for high school students that a lot of people say, uh, some people say are, are beyond repair. Well, it turns out you can move them with just simple tutoring from yes. uh, from tutors that have just recently graduated college. So they don't have a lot of experience. It's possible, which I think is really exciting. Uh, I'll, I'll give you uh, two others. Um What Cleveland is doing, I think, with microschools, not just to have a place right now for uh, students to learn, but they're starting to talk about how do we keep using microschools as places for students to do peer-to-peer learning, for example, and catch up in that way. I think that's really exciting. Uh, And then a third one, uh, I pulled this from an Education Week article that I thought was interesting uh, about three districts doing different approaches to catching up. And uh, this was Ector County, Texas. Um, They said the school district has added 30 additional Additional days to the end of the uh, 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 calendar, which seems to be, by the way, happening in a lot of districts across yes. America right now. And I have some concerns about that, I'll say, because I'm worried that it's just going to be more of the same in those right. 30 days. But they intentionally said, we're not just going to do the same thing we've done. We're going to take a page from Public Impact, which is a nonprofit group out of North Carolina that has long talked about how do you extend the reach of great teachers, uh, and they're going to increase the number of students who have access to the district's strongest teachers, their so-called master teachers, uh, with support of college students, likely in a competency-based model, as opposed to delivering the same content for all students. I think that's intriguing. I'll give you yep. a, a fourth one. I lied. Um, which is, this is where you can use technology not to try to boil the ocean, but to just help with the content yes. pieces so that you can do more uh, Uh, in your in-person time with each other focused on the application and projects and feedback that really get you your bang for your buck.
1: And Michael, you're leading us right into number five. I couldn't agree more on that. Um, You know, the adaptive technology around literacy and numeracy, uh, you know, it's really effective. Kids use it. It's really effective. And it requires a technological infrastructure that we've long talked about. And I'm getting nervous that as we start to move back into buildings, we are gonna lose focus on accomplishing what I think is a very straightforward goal that we have to hit as a nation, which is we've got to make sure that broadband, there's universal access to broadband and one-to-one devices for every child in this country Michael, we can never lose students and families again. Literally, we can't even access them. We don't even know how many of them. And they have no means of contact and connection and ongoing learning, which you know, our day to day life is growing more and more digitally dependent every day. It's a huge equity issue. Where do you think we are on this? Are we going to get there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm concerned because a year in, the evidence seems to suggest that 12 million kids still don't ac- have access to Wi-Fi and a dedicated device, uh, you know, at home. And that just, it, at least we have the data now, I guess you could say. So once you have the data, it's easier to start to construct um, ways to solve it. But, uh, you know, this is not where we need to be uh, as a country no. right now. And uh, it's it's important that we solve it. It can be solved. I'm glad that Evan Marwell, uh, who, who <laughs> was on the show with Education Superhighway uh, in the first season, you know, their group seems to be driving toward this new goal, which I think is important. The other thing I will add in terms of the uh, losing connection with families, there are so many cool apps out there now um, that do simple text messaging uh, in -hmm. different languages to parents and guardians to just figure out what's going on, to make sure that they get basic messages, that they are in touch with the schooling community. Um, And, you know, that's very low hanging fruit because, you know, while there are huge gaps in the devices and Wi-Fi needed to really do good online schooling when when Mm -hmm. you're in there, most people do have a simple cell phone for the text messages. And so to at least create that connectivity at that level, that feels like incredibly low hanging fruit as on. I don't want to let us off the hook on the other one either, though, because I think we can accomplish that, too. What are your thoughts?
1: Um, I'm with you. I just think it's a must. It's a must. We have to do it. If we come out of this year of the pandemic with (laughs) this is the thing we definitely should have done. And so I just want to keep it Uh, top of mind and present and and focus focus us there
0: yeah I'll add up one other thing which is if you're a school or district um, figure out who has the access and devices don't spend your dollars there we know money is tight well (laughs) different topic for another episode there's actually a lot of money coming in but uh, but we know that generally right dollars are tight on an ongoing basis Let's figure out how to spend the money where those families really, truly need it, and make sure that everyone gets access. This seems like something that we can do in a targeted, smart way.
1: I agree with you, Michael. And um, you know, l- l- where let's let's t- let's conclude with where we're spending our time. Time okay. is a resource as much as money. What are you What are you reading, watching, thinking about? Uh,
0: yeah. Thinking? I'm sticking with, I'm sticking with history right now. And I don't know why, but I'm, well, I mean, maybe because I was a history major, but, uh, and I'm, I think I'm partially feeling the need, Diane, to not just read education, um, uh, and and books about the current moment I like I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm feeling the need to lift out of it a little bit and so I think that's why I'm going back to history I just finished uh, Bunker Hill uh, by Nathaniel Philbrick it's uh, about the Battle of Bunker Hill that actually mostly took place at Breed's Hill uh, not too far from well, me, there you uh, go. In Boston um, mm-hmm. but uh you know uh, but names are not the thing you need to memorize that <laughs> better sure to understand enough. the better better to understand the, uh, the the course of the events and what they led us on and I'm still plugging away on kiss I'm on page uh, you know 500 or something oh my so, gosh. I'm, so I'm getting there but what, what's on your list Diane
1: well I um, for similar reasons have gone the other direction and have tur- leaned into his uh, fiction lately Michael um, again to sort of quiet some of the noise that's out there you just can't do it all the time you know um, and so I've just finished the vanishing half by Brett Bennett um, you know, given the others who've recommended it, including President Obama naming it his favorite book of 2020, you know, you don't really need me to suggest it for you. But that said, if you're like me and a little bit slow in getting to it, um, I I highly recommend it. It is, it's beautiful. It's provocative. It's compelling. It's human. It's just everything you would want in in a novel. And I loved it.
0: Well, that's a good place to leave us on a hopeful, optimistic uh, human place. And thank you all again for joining us on Class Disrupted, and we'll see you next time.